This podcast is proudly brought to you by Colourfront. Colourfront's leading onset dailies and express daily systems deliver integrated production-proven dailies tools with state-of-the-art colour and image science, leading camera raw support, and simultaneous faster-than-real-time deliveries in all common file formats. Visit colourfront.com. Listening to the RC, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking, and cutting edge imaging. Hi, and welcome to this week's RC podcast covering digital cinematography. This week we're going to be covering the Canon M mount, old school film processing. Is the OLED bomb a bomb? And we'll be talking about lenses and a whole bunch of other stuff uh, here on the RC podcast, where we see our role to mine the news, filter the blogs, and yes, go down some serious rat holes. We know you guys love them. Um, this is the camera tech that we're discussing, obsessing about, and arguing about. And this week, for that argument, discussion, and conversation, I'm joined by my good friend, cinematographer Tom Gleason, sitting in for Jason Wingrove. How are you, Tom? I am fantastic. It's a pleasure to be here. Although, feel free to throw something at me if I fall asleep. I've so I was saying, I've just come off a couple of big shoots, so I'm a little battle-weary. You've been having some 4.30 starts, right? Yeah. Oh, a lot of them, and they've all been very long days. Uh, so uh, uh, I have today off, so I'm thrilled. But, um, <laughs> what have you been shooting hard on? work. What have you been shooting on? Um, I have been shooting on Epic, and I have been shooting on Phantom, um, uh, which I always absolutely adore. It's my, some of my favourite uh, work, really, is working on those high-speed cameras, it realizes and visualizes a whole new hidden world that um, is normally hidden to our perception. What sort of frame rate are you running at? We ran um, a variety. We we actually used the Epic as well on this job, um, but uh, we ran the Phantom around a thousand. Uh, we were do- dealing mainly with people, and uh, therefore anything beyond a thousand is not so valuable. They begin to become statues. Well, but, and it's really hard to do it in the edit, right? Because yeah. you just want to cut away. Exactly. Um, but we used Epic for some just run around handheld stuff because the, the the big the, it's changing. I know with cameras like the Miro, um, but um, the uh, Phantoms, uh, most of the high speed cameras are still tethered machines. It's a a little bit of a palaver, um, but we were using a great technique where we would hop it the Phantom in the car and we would drive past our subjects at. 60, 70 kilometres an hour. So therefore we'd have a tracking shot. All right. So even though that they were almost frozen in their movement, we were getting a, a dimensionality by the camera moving past. And I, I think I calculated that the track ends up being about four, three or four kilometres an hour in right. real speed. But it really, it was a, it was a, a nice technique. We, um, we published in the last episode of FX Guide TV um, a... Uh, well, it was like the, the episode itself actually had two parts in it. So the second half of that was on motion capture work coming out of um, Germany. And the thing about that is that these guys specialize in producing motion capture rigs that are capable of doing incredibly fast, very precise movements. So mm. it snaps around a drum kit, for example. I mean, just, and it's all built on robotics of, you know, me- Indu- uh, industrial robots. robots. Yeah. And it would snap around it just so that when you wanted the panning shot across the symbols as it was being hit slow, yeah. it would look nice and, and easy. But, man, these things were like – they're so violent, but actually stopping um, on a dime because, you, yeah. you know, you just don't want that after kind of shock wobble. It's, it's a fantastic idea because the, the, the higher you go, the, in some ways, the more like a still shot it becomes. So by adding that camera movement, you recapture that dimensionality as you come around objects and around and um, and, and occlusion, so uh, we were lucky. We were doing street scenes, so it was, yeah. it was, it was straightforward to be driving a the, car. These guys are doing like I want to track as a wine glass is falling and shattering. Hmm. Um, this this rig they built is called the Spike, and uh, the company is Marmalade in um, in Germany. But I would really recommend if you uh, haven't seen FX Guy TV, it's episode 151. It goes by the name of the lead story, which was Game of Thrones. But Game of Thrones is the first half. It's been nominated for an Emmy, and the second half is um, is that uh, Spike rig. And it's they they gave us amazing footage. I mean, just awesome stuff to have a look mm. at. So, and Game of Thrones. Oh my God, does that take television to another stage? It is actually okay. So we'll rat hole straight off the game. It's like one of my favourite shows. Yeah. I um I was stunned at how um good that was. Just it was 
incredible. And and it was incredible in ways I didn't expect. For a start, they kept on killing off lead characters, which I'm just told is from the book, but of course I didn't expect mm. that. I expected the you know, usual television thing where, you know, I fall in love with this guy who's on the poster in series one. I expect him to be in series two. I expect him to chop his head off. Survive beyond, yeah. So so that was uh, mm. extraordinary. And the, um, the, the whole production value, it, it feels so cinematic. There's nothing about it any time do you feel that you're watching a television series. You, It feels it at every moment that you're watching a, a a feature film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think it it helps that the material is kind of serious, and mm. of course, it helps that you've got such good actors, because um, uh, the the performance of some of them in that are just outstanding. I think. Um, and actually, can I ask? Is that an Alexa production? Oh, I should know that. Um, I think it is. Yeah, seemed to vaguely sure. remember too, but I wouldn't bet money on it. Yeah, I, in my defence, uh, John Montgomery did the uh, very good interview that uh, is the basis of that, not me. Um, but yes, I'm, I'll, I'll look that up while we're chatting. I was talking to someone this morning actually about uh, motion capture, talking about um, the Alexa, and uh, they did. Um, I don't think this is any secret. No, yeah, I was talking to uh, the guys at um, New Deal Studios, and they won, or part of the team that won the Oscar for Hugo. Yep. And they were saying how funny it was because I was commenting on, you know, the size of the cameras vis-a-vis getting in close on stuff. It was, this was just a conversation. It wasn't an interview or anything. Anyway, so um, <laughs> uh, they were saying, well, yeah, you know, in the old days, someone would say, oh, there's a new camera coming out. And like three years later, you know, you use it on production. Like yeah. Hugo today, if you did it just today, and this, of course, last, what, is like a year ago, um, they would use cameras that are a quarter of the size because they'd use the Alexa M's that are split in half. And, yeah. And would make a huge difference to them. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it was just uh, extraordinary. Hey, I should I probably, just while we're here, because we're talking about the Emmys, just flag the cinematographers that have been, um, uh, or rather the shows, I guess, that they've filmed, because in many cases for series and stuff, it's a, it's a group of cinematographers that are involved. But um, I'm just going to give a couple of the shout-outs. Um, in terms of uh, miniseries and movie and, uh, and dramas, which I think are two of the really interesting categories this year, um, miniseries and uh, movie on television Game Change I don't know if you saw Game Change it was an HBO one about um, Sarah Palin and uh, no it has a really interesting um, problem for the cinematographers because um, they're trying to recreate of course uh, footage that is intercutting with uh, news footage hmm. and sometimes they're intercutting in the debates between live footage from the debate with the real Joe Biden yeah. And the obviously actress playing Sarah Palin, so an interesting cinematography task to to match down to kind mm. of news footage uh, in an otherwise uh, very slick. Did they of, use television cameras? They must have because it was um, it was pretty well done actually from a lighting and every other kind of point of view. But yeah. it's you know that problem of uh, trying to comp somebody into a shot where you're not just matching the lighting but matching the feel, almost the texture of the production. Yeah. Um, which was interesting. Um, and then the other ones in that category, there's a few. Uh, Great Expectations, which I think is really nice. I've seen yeah. that. Um, it was uh, PBS, uh, BBC production. I, I'm lucky because I'm in the Academy, so they send me these things to look at. Um, Hemingway uh, and uh, Gilhorn, I haven't seen that. I've been really looking forward to seeing that. Uh, Sherlock, um, the Scandal in Belgravia episode. I don't know if you've been watching the Sherlock series. It's been on here, but... Yeah, I have, yes. It's the you know new imagined version where he's um, uh, really totally into you know gadgets and stuff and uh treasure island uh which is more of a sci-fi um thing so that's and not downton abbey that's cinematography for a mini six the trouble is there's quite a few categories um there's outstanding cinematography for a multi-camera series which i'm not doing which covers the things like madman and uh, stuff that you'd expect not to take anything away from those but um and then there's outstanding cinematography for a single camera series of which we've seen boardwalk empire and breaking bad and uh, let me just see. Yeah. And then there's also cinematography for reality programming, which tends to be things like, you know, Project Runway, Survivor, yeah. Top Chef kind of stuff, which, look, let's take nothing away from that again because it's, it's, uh, it's great. Yes, I got nominated for an Emmy for that Survivor show. Did you go? I did actually go. But it was um, September, um, September 2001, unfortunately. Oh, no. So it was uh, – I don't think they even finished the Emmys that year because uh, – we went and uh, the, they had the technical Emmys, and then a few days later, it was September 11, 
and um, I think they cancelled the rest from memory. I, I, when I went for my Emmy nomination, um, it was a really good party. They had mm. like huge ice sculptures with tequila being poured in the top, and you just put your glass at the bottom, and it'd get yeah. chilled tequila. They, they did have a good party. The it was yeah. a great party. I loved it, but um, yeah, I've got to say, like it's um, obviously neither you or I walking down the red carpet causes many photographers to snap their cameras. But it is fun walking the red carpet. It's fun being in the limo queue. It's fun hanging out with people. And it's fun drinking at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and finishing at about 3 o'clock in the morning. And it's nice to be on the other side of the red carpet. (laughs) Yes. I have been on the other side many times. Yes. No, that is true. Um, See, I I don't see any nomination for... um, in just looking at this uh, this running sheet that I've got from, and this is officially from the Emmys, um, uh, for Downton, so I don't know that was mm. that was nominated. Though you'd think it had sort of good chance, wouldn't you? Yeah. Um, I mean, the general standard of television shooting has just skyrocketed. Yeah. It's no. very competitive. It's lots of very, very, very well shot shows. Uh, yeah, I totally agree with you. In fact, I think that that's one of the cr- sort of criticisms that you could place on the, um, well, not criticisms, but the pressures that have been placed on cinematographers is that it's been lifted so high that the pressure on them to deliver what is basically uh, very cinematic feature film level stuff on a both production schedule and budget of yeah. a uh, television program is, uh, is really, really hard going. So um, anyway, we've got uh, uh, more of that over at FX Guide if you're interested in that um, Emmy stuff. Um, but congratulations to all those teams that have uh, done so well, and we'll probably cover more of that after the actual Emmys um, have gone to uh, uh, been held and, and awarded. Um, just jumping to news, Tom. Some new cameras have come out. Um, one of them uh, is, I think, particularly interesting, and I want to talk about. It. I'm just going to knock off the other one first. It's the Sony um, PVMW 200 uh, 422 HD uh, XD cam, and the reason I want to mention this is this is a 50 megabit per second um, uh, MXF recording. You know, proper Genlock camera um i was just really interested because in the early days of the xd cams we tended to see 420 and and um, sort of compromises them so this is actually a 422 camera now it's still a two-thirds inch uh sensor but this is coming out in september for around i am told uh i think and um it's not uh you know it's not yeah seven thousand eight hundred in september so that's seven thousand eight hundred dollars for a two-third-inch sensor full XD cam codec camera. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the PBMW 500 was, uh, what, 25 grand? So these are US dollars. Uh, and, these days it's about the same So I, I don't have the information in front of me. Is that also a B4 mount? Is it an interchangeable lens system? Uh, terrific question. Let me just check that. I, um, I mean, that, that is a game-changer in sense, in sense of, you know, television cameras... Um, with B4 mounts and, uh, you know, uh, traditionally being in the tens and tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah, obviously not being out yet. That's why I'm just a little uh, cautious to check my facts. So I will loop around on that when I find out. Uh, It would be interesting if Sony did that because in some ways it it obviously cannibalises their sales of um, the uh, PDW 700s, the 800s, um, those sort of cameras. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that um, I think Sony has been a lot more aggressive in recent times. Like, yep. I think that they've really um, taken the uh, taken yeah. up the mantle and sort of responded. I, I think they've positioned their cameras often though on, on the sensor size. So, um, you know, they've yes. started in the one third sensor, then the half inch sensor, and then kept the two third sensors um, ready for their top end broadcast m- um, machines. They're going to have Wi-Fi control on it, um, which is going to mm-hmm. be good. And uh, they're really designing it for both studio and location use. So there's quite a bunch of, um, of stuff that's coming with it. Um, okay, because I, I know it's, I'm, I'm just looking at the lensing at the moment and it's discussing the lens that it's coming with, which is a, you know, a 14 times zoom kind of image stabilizing lens. So that would be included in the price. But, yeah, I can't find included out in the, the price. format. So Yeah, it, it's, I mean, it sounds like a fixed lens. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Though only by admission in the sense that they haven't discussed the uh, the mount. So you would expect they would if they did. Um, but, as I say, the camera's not out yet. So they've only just announced it. So that's why um, I, well, I can't That, that would be good news if you're a documentary filmmaker or um, uh, sort of the reality style of television. I mean, obviously image quality is another issue and – Sony would probably choose to not put the signal processing into it that it puts into its 700s and 800s. But 
But let me talk about another camera that's come out that I have a lot more information on, which is an interchangeable lens because it is an SLR. It is, however, a mirrorless SLR. It's the Canon uh, M-series, EOS M-series interchangeable lens. Uh, now, this is an APS-C sensor. Uh, this is probably, you know, Canon coming late to the party, but it's just really bizarre for me to have an SLR that doesn't have an SLR form factor and has a form factor which is not dissimilar to the, uh, you know, is it sure shot? The, you know the small ones? The, yep. Um So big screen on the back, um, but a big lens mount on the front. This is not, however, a uh, standard uh, mount. So this is not the mount that we would use on mm. our 5D Mark III's or whatever. Um, there is an adapter, though, that will take um, one of those lenses the, uh, and put it on. So you could take an EF, round, EF lens and mount it on the ESM. Um, the the two lenses that have been announced so far that are native to this camera are a 22 pancake, which is really small. Yep. Um, and I think that's cocking in at about F2. So that's... Okay, not shabby. Yep, 22. Though it's 22 given that it's a C sensor, right? Yes. Not, not in yep. the... And it won't have full frame coverage. And the other one's an 18 to uh, 55 zoom, which I think most people would go for if they were buying this camera kind of off the shelf and maybe yep. not so serious. The people I know that have bought this, I don't know, Stu, for example, has uh, put an order in for this because he posted it. He um, he bought the 22 because that 22, which is probably what more like about a 30, mm. is is a lovely wide angle kind of look. I love my 35 millimeter lens on my 5D Mark III. Um, and the reason we're mentioning in this show, of course, is that it has full HD with stereo sound, 1920 by 1080 in 30, 25 or 24. So it's uh, shooting uh, HD. It's just a lot smaller. And, you know, it's going to get really hard. Um, this camera isn't out just yet. It's going to ship. And I think I looked online at the delivery date from B&H, which I'm pretty sure was October. But imagine you had this at the Olympics, right? Um, hmm. How do you, you know, control this getting through the gate? Because uh, this doesn't look like an SLR at all. And I know at the Olympics there, we did this, I think, on the podcast, they're covering off um, getting people in or out of the professional, non-professional bracket by the length of their lens. Yeah. But yeah. Um, even here, <laughs> these lenses are shorter because, you know, that's what the adapters And for. out of interest, this form factor, uh, Canon camera, the viewfinder is just a, just a screen on the back? or Just a big screen on the back. Right. So there's no, <clears throat> no EVF as such. No, because of course, or, or there viewfinder. Is, I should yeah, say. Yeah, because what would that be? That would be just a viewfinder looking at a screen. Yeah. Because the whole point of a viewfinder on an SLR, as you well know, is that you're looking through the uh, reflex mirror. action of the the mirror. You just lose a huge amount of uh, volume in your camera from the lack of airspace required for the swing room of a mirror tilting up and down. Now we don't care about that in video because it's always up. Uh, stills guys have traditionally really wanted to have a uh, optical path to yep. see what they're looking at i don't even know that that's true as much as it used to be today but that has always been the rationale well it's an interesting point because i i, I think cameras like this point to the future of all photography and all cinematography um traditionally you've needed the room for in stills world for the, for a swinging mirror um and in cinematography for a spinning shutter um both of those are moving into obsolescence um, viewfinders um, are becoming extremely good. They're probably not there yet, but you know the the, the latest viewfinder viewfinders on cameras, like the Alexa and even the Epic, are beginning to move in closer to optical quality. And of course, you save a vast amount—not only space, but I think you also save a vast amount of money because in the past you've had to design lenses that project back forty to fifty right. millimeters back onto a film plane. And from what I understand in optical design, it's a lot cheaper and easier if that lens is a lot closer to the sensor. So um, if we can remove space that, frankly, we just don't need, we've, we've made the camera smaller, we can also make our, ca- our lenses cheaper and more easily. So there's a lot to be said for it. Um, it's really in some ways um, a technical hangover. Having said that, changing the flange depth, which is an industry standard, would never be an easy task. Cameras like the Epic are probably better suited because you can very easily change that mount. Um, but I, I think you'll see in the next couple of years, and even the next within ten years, all cameras will be in this format. 
I mean, what's really interesting is the number of cameras that are already in this format. Um, if we think mm. about it, you've got the Panasonic and Olympics, the four thirds yep. um, guys. Then you've got Nikon One. Is it? I think the Nikon One system. Yeah. Um, Sony NEX. Exactly the Sony NEX, which is the closest to this, right? Because the Sony yep. NEX is the same idea of a uh, APS-C kind of sensor being shoved in with as much DLSL technology as you can into a small kind of little compact job. I mean, I think it's really good. For example, this has um, uh, stereo. But I will say the things that are really of interest to me aren't even those things because I tend to do external stereo recording these days and just use it as a guide track. Hmm. Now, the things for me is that um, this has got a pretty good ISO range. I mean, it's meant to be between 100 and uh, uh, 12,800, though it can be pushed to 25,000. But if this has anything useful at 5,000, like we're seeing yep. at the um, – that's a really amazing kind of uh, level to be at. It's got 14-bit image processing. Um, it has the the – five-level processor that you sort of see in the um, EOS uh, 650D kind of, for example. Mm. And um, it just also, it's just an 18-megapixel camera, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, that, that, that form factor without the mirror, there's absolutely no reason why it cannot be as good a camera as any SLR. Yeah, I mean, we typically get excited about the 5D for its ability to do a couple of things. Um, this doesn't do one of them. It doesn't do the really sort of shallow depth of field because it isn't quite as big a sensor. Yeah. But we love it for its ability to shoot video and not kind of get in the way. Um, you know, you really can. Uh, yeah. It's great for behind the sets photography. Oh, yeah. I was on set of a TV, shooting on a TV um, series recently, and the stills guys still have SLRs in these huge barnies. Oh, yeah, because of the noise. Because of the noise of the mirror. Isn't that thinking, funny? Oh, my God, look at the size of it. Because um, there is a silent er mode. It's mm. not completely silent on the uh, 5D Mark III, which is nice. Like, it's a less noisy mode. But you're absolutely okay. right. You, you don't actually want that noise, do you? In quite no. often. It doesn't matter if you're on the uh, on the rope line um, at the Emmys. You can make as much noise as you like. No, exactly. Tom, this way, Tom. Look here, Tom, Tom. Yes. But, um, <laughs> no, out of the way, Tom. Out of the way. I don't think it'll interest us, but just to complete the picture, there is actually also a uh, new flash that goes in because there's no built-in flash in this camera. So there's a little teeny, like it's got the 90EX flash unit that'll um, mm. also go on top of it. Um, well, I wonder again in another 10 years whether you'll see many flash units with cameras moving to ISOs um, that are equivalent to human vision. Um, unless you really want to take photos in rooms so dark that you can't see. Um, well, I will say this. I... Um, I got some flashes, and I, I tell you why I did it. I've got a rule in life that if you've got time, and you know, occasionally I do, it's great to tackle something that you've been, I'm going to say scared of, but you've said, oh, that's too hard. Like, mm. you know, and you know in your gut that it probably isn't too hard, but you've just gone, it's all a bit too hard. Yeah. And I had been that way about flash photography, and I knew that what I had to do was get at least two flashes, and I had to go off camera. Yes. And so I just didn't do that for ages. And don't point them at the subject. So what I've done now is gone um, and... You know, giving myself the task of photographing things like parties and stuff yeah. where I've got fast action happening. So I do want to have um, more light level and I want to get something really interesting happening. And I've had some really great success with putting flashes like right behind people mm -hmm. and sort of rim lighting them and stuff yeah. with really dramatic effect. But that being said, it's a hassle like you've, you know, whatever. It's so much clobber. You know what yep. I mean? Because these flashes are bulky. The professional are bulky. photographers will always use flashes because they're modeling and controlling light. Um, but I, I suppose my statement was more in terms for the happy snap um, cameras where um, the flashes, which, you know, are sitting one inch away from the lens. Oh, look, there's more crimes against photography caused by flashes yeah. uh, than almost anything else. But, uh, but Tom, I, I think there is actually a, a, a gap creatively between what professional photographers do and what I can do. And that one is um, when I've worked with professional photographers and we've done courses at PhD on them, they're, they've got a pre-light light coming from the flash. flash yeah. So you can, you can sit there and look at it with your naked eye and yeah. say, okay, that looks nice. And then when you take the flash, you're upping the contrast a and little the and the levels and stuff. But you're sort of still getting a modeling effect from the passive light before the flash goes off. In my world, if the room is dark and I put the flash down, it remains dark until the flash goes off. Yeah. Yeah. So it's. I do think that professional photographers, because um, I always wondered, like, how do you, you know, use flashes so well? Mm. And it wasn't until I started doing stuff with with Tim uh, Willard, who did our stuff, and I was like, okay, well, you actually, if you had a super ISO, you wouldn't even need to fire the flash because these big, big soft boxes they've got yeah. are doing a beautiful job. Um, but I would agree with you at a point and shoot level. Um, 
yeah, it's it's really only blur I can think of that you know. I mean, yeah, and I suppose that blur becomes even less an issue once ISOs begin to move. To yeah, ten twenty thousand. You're suddenly using a shutter speed of one two hundredth of a second in a in a averagely lit light bulb room. There, there is actually one other exception to that. I mm. have used a flash when I've got very. Um, so, like, imagine you've got a gorgeous sunset and you've yep. got someone with their back to it. It's a fill light. You just want to fill light. And and yep. in an exterior environment, that fill light gives you that wonderful – I mean, I think that's a really professional look. Yeah. A, a, a front lit um, – it, it looks studio. It doesn't yep. look sort of real, but it's for non-realistic kind of stuff. You could have an athlete uh, running or something and they're flood lit with that kind of punch of gorgeous light – with a very, very, very strong backlit, and you get a really polished look out of it. Oh, so. absolutely, and sometimes the, 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 it can give you two exposures. You've, you can fire the flash, which will give you one ten-thousandth of a second, but then if you've got a shutter at one thirtieth, right. you're shooting an athlete, so you've got an image of him sharp, then you've got a, a blurred image as well. But I guess so my favourite bit The amount flashes. of time I've spent on my camera trying to get <laughs> first curtain or second curtain yeah, to yeah. get that round the right way so the trail doesn't happen yeah. in front of them is yeah. nobody's business. Look, it's an incredibly powerful tool um, and it, they won't go away. Um, although they must make the, tungsten. It's so annoying that all the flashes are so cold I and mean, they seem even colder than daylight most of the time. And, and since you're using them in parties or inside homes, you've always got this cold, cold flash and everything else in the room is super warm. Yeah, and that's why I use two because often my second flash is just a kind of a general bounce light off the yeah. roof or something to give something happening in the background. Exactly right, yeah. You get that color temperature problem, which is, um, which is a real deal because uh, it's incredibly hard to deal inside a picture when you have dual um, color temperatures. Well, I wanted to, um, if I couldn't pivot on our discussion on that viewfinder thing, to ask you about the OLED viewfinder yeah, because... Uh- I recently upgraded mine, uh, a bomb, uh, epic bomb EVF to the OLED, um, uh, because I, I, maybe I'm a bit old fashioned, but I love a viewfinder. I mean, I, I mean, it's one thing working with small monitors on a camera can be very handy, can be very quick, um, and can be quite comfortable. But there's nothing like closing your left eye, placing your right eye in that viewfinder, and that's all you see. Every other distraction is gone. Um, I find it much easier to analyse the image. I find it much easier to see if I've got a problem, um, maybe a C-stand leg popping into frame somewhere. Um, and for handheld use, the, the ability to push that camera against my face and my head and make it part of my body, um, uh, I really, really enjoy it. So in other words, I, I, I like a viewfinder. Um, and uh, I also want to be able to make judgments with my EVF. Um, what I see in that viewfinder, I want it to be as close as possible to a representation of what that camera's recording. Um, so I ponied up my twelve hundred dollars um, for the OLED, um, and uh, I am very happy in some ways. It, the contrast in it is quite fantastic. Right. Um, it is, you know, again another step closer to a looking to an optical viewfinder. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll just go off a tangent. Optical viewfinders on film cameras were often terrible. Oh, <laughs> dark and dingy, and they flicked. And then as soon as you start putting NDs in, they get honestly, you know, I mean, putting N, the thought of putting ND two point one on a film camera outside and then trying to operate, um, you just wouldn't imagine how tough that could be. Um, but the, the I've got to say, with my OLED, I'm finding it very warm. It's like having a half eighty five on the picture all the time. Okay. And that that's a problem. Yeah. Um, and also... You can't up that anyway? Sorry? You can't change... Well, I can, but I change the whole monitoring chain. Ah. So if I could adjust, and that may come in build, if I could adjust just the viewfinder, then I'd, I'd assume that's not much of an image. And this may be a firmware update. It may be a something about um, my particular viewfinder, I don't know. Um, uh, but I, I do... Look, I, I have to... So I think the Alexa viewfinder is probably the nicest one I've seen. The optical one? Uh, no, they're, they're, they're EVF. Oh, right, okay. I've yeah. not seen their optical one. I, 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 I played with it, but it's really expensive. Yeah, and I think for memory... See, one, one thing, that film camera, of course, you look to an optical viewfinder, the shutter wasn't rolling. Um, uh, so when you weren't rolling, there was no flicker. Yeah. But from what I understand with the Alexa one, it's flickering all the time. Because the, the shutter's rolling the entire time because 
the, the role <laughs> the shutter's not connected to the record mechanism. I'm, I'm pausing because I've also looked at the uh, Sony one on the F65, I think, and I'm mm. confusing the two. But um, I mean, I just I'm just sorry, I'm not an optical viewfinder is worth the money guy. No. I, and I know I'm not a cinematographer enough to. I mean, that's really you know showing my background as a post guy. But there are things I'll really spend money on, and that isn't one of them. No, look, I, 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 I'm, I'm in the same camp as you. Um, um, I mean, certainly a film camera with an optical viewfinder and you're in a nicely br- bright room and you're lensed up and you've got no ND, it really is very handsome and you are seeing, in a sense, the reality. Um, but I, I actually love the idea of a, a viewfinder that's telling me what the camera's recording. Mm, An well, optical viewfinder yeah. doesn't tell me what the film's doing. So um, you can be happily shooting away five stops under or overexposed on a film camera and have, you know, I mean, that didn't happen, but, yeah. you know, you could be out and you'd have no, no yeah, idea. Right. I mean, I've, I've got, look, we're sitting here recording with my USB pre tube sound devices and I have an option to listen to your audio pre the record or post. In yeah. other words, I get a loop back because it's on a USB. So I could be listening to you now or I could listen to what the recording is. Mm. And because this is a good professional piece of audio kit, I can do that without a delay. Now, I much prefer to listen to what's going down because if there's mm. a hiss or a problem, which can happen from audio cables being next to power cables, I'm not going to hear them. Yep. And so as a rule of thumb, I, I mean, I think that's a really valid point. Like, yeah, see, it makes sense to me. Uh, and I have to say with the OLED as well, it's almost overly bright. It's very easy to underexpose the image with it because um, you look at it and you go, wow, that's, wow it's, it's looking great. I mean, obviously you should be looking at histograms and everything else, but it's, I, I just can't see why my viewfinder can't i mean if i've got my mo- uh, my sony monitor and my uh uh the onboard monitor from epic and i look at those two they look very similar i think great fantastic um then i look in my evf um and i'm i just think that evfs really should be giving me and, and i'm i feel a bit uncomfortable because it's a great viewfinder in many many respects um but uh uh I mean, hell, I remember black and white viewfinders. <laughs> it is funny, isn't it? I was talking to someone the other day who does uh, just completely unrelated. They do visual effects and, and for a major studio, and they were talking about doing finite element analysis stuff um, for destruction sims, and they were saying, oh, because I like to go a bit faster, and I really had to go, you know, let's not forget, we are talking about something that mathematically shouldn't be possible, even in the speeds you're doing it at. Yeah. And he's like, oh, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, before I saw this, it was just, I mean, it was just, broke all the kind of rules it was just so much faster we'd ever had before but of course now it went faster <laughs> it's like you know you don't get long in that window between introducing something and it being taken for granted and we want the thing to go beyond it yeah yeah and look fair enough and, and, and that pace is ever increasing um but uh so look i look the, uh, I, I'll, I'll i'll have what i put it i'll i'll give um the the oled viewfinder a little bit of time it's it's brand new um, I've just been able to adjust the new firmware. You've been able to adjust the brightness of that viewfinder, and that's only just been out um, recently. So, um, but just uh, yeah, I have to say, overall, just a, a little disappointed um, uh, that uh, it's not. You know, one day viewfinders will look like a high quality optical viewfinder. I'm looking forward to that. Okay. In other news, uh, my favourite, uh, I shouldn't sort of. I, it's probably no big secret, really. I just like Cook lenses. So my favourite. Uh, Lens manufacturer, Cook Optics, are going to be coming out with more um, uh, in their Pancro line. So there's a 65 prototype which will be shown at IBC. Now, as everyone knows, it's probably there really should be called the S3, S4, S5, but it isn't, of course. It's the Pancro, the S4, and the S5. Um, and those uh, Pancro lenses, while maybe not as fast as I personally would like, um, uh, just gorgeous and of course the S4s and S5s are just magnificent though optically I claim as I think many people now do that once you get off wide open and start shooting around the mid you know f4 five six you actually can't tell the difference between the the four the five and the and the pancro they're so good these days anyway um, the reason that they're doing this Tom is that they just seem to be a, in their words a big shift from people shooting um, with smaller two-thirds inch sensors and now moving to PL mount cameras, uh, being, you know, obviously F3, F35, F65, the ARRI, we've already mentioned red, of course. Um, so, yeah, a lot of people moving to PL mount, yeah, they've just I, got I, huge demand. I, I, I'm i just trying to think, excluding soap operas, certainly in Australia, 
I, I think every single television drama in Australia is now in big format. I'll get shot down for this, but um, there's maybe some exceptions. But certainly, any, any every single TV show I've been involved with, um, it's it's all now either Alexa or Epic. And I think some of the smaller magazine shows are even using F3s. So um, I don't think general magazine TV um, or news or, or current affairs, that sort of thing, will ever move away from B4. Um, but uh, certainly drama now, uh, B4 is a, is a rare sight. So look, we, we've discussed this a little bit, but um, you and I have done this Inside FX PhD, but I don't think I've had you on the show since we were playing with the Blackmagic camera. Yep down at, uh, which I think we're allowed to say because we said it in the show. Yeah, yeah, well, so, I think so, yeah. So this is uh, an Australian uh, show called uh, Puberty Blues. It's a very well-known modern uh, book that was already made into a film a few years ago, and so this is now a new series. Um, looks good, but they were using the um, the, the Blackmagic camera. The reason to bring it up, of course, is the Blackmagic camera isn't a large sensor. No, but I think they tended to use it with uh, longer lenses, when, when they did do it. And so um, once you go longer, even that smaller four-third sensor, you're getting nice drop-off on it anyway. Um, so yeah, true, it's not a match to the Alexa. Um, and so if you're using exactly the same lenses at the same distances, it would give you a, a, a different um, bokeh or, or out-of-focus depth of field. But um, yeah, because it was used to ping off um, shots in setups on longer lenses, then it, it worked. Do you want to give your kind of, I mean, it isn't released, this camera, so you were looking at a pre-release camera, but for those that haven't heard your opinion on it, because uh, we had a whole class that, you know, had like what, half oh. of it devoted to it. But Yeah, look, like every camera, it, it probably has strengths and weaknesses. Um, uh, I, I, I Look, for $3,000, oh, my God. You cannot discuss this camera without discussing its price, can yes, you? Yes, absolutely. But that's probably true of every camera in a sense because it's sort of, it, it, in some ways, positions its it, it's value per pixel, if you if you put it like that. Um, but for $3,000, the sort of work I do, I would consider that to be a crash camera. Um, it could be the camera you just throw into something. Um, it's, uh, we, you know, we're looking at doing some heli- uh, RC helicopter work soon. Um, and there's some discussion of putting epics in it that give me a heart attack mm. to put an epic in an RC helicopter. Let's but put a 5D Mark II in there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I would if it did. If the um, uh, the rolling shutter wasn't well, so bad. Problem, yeah. Um, although I, th- I'll be interested. I must admit, I don't know the Black Magic's global or. It seemed to be better to me than I saw on a 5D. Y- yeah. And not, and, and I'm not saying that it's you know really spectacularly great that because I haven't had a chance to film with the black magic and then analyze the footage. So, so I'm telling you this by way of qualifying mm. comments, uh, but like you, we got to play with the camera and, and, you know, run around with it. You just didn't get to keep that footage and come back and analyze it. Um, it's got to be getting close to being released that camera. Um, who knows? I mean, like any R and D, you always think you're close and then another issue or, or um, problem comes up that needs to be dealt with. Um, but, yeah, it was, it's certainly on the road, and we were using a camera that was fully functional. Um, that camera is actually shooting shots that are going into that program. Um, it was proving to be reliable. Um, uh, uh, so, yes, but I, I wouldn't hazard a guess. Um, R&Ds always <laughs> a, a long and hard road. But, yeah, look, fantastic. I'm really excited there's another option, but it, it is a, it's like the Epic or a Skull. It's a brain. And so you would need to, need to build a system around it. You wouldn't think for $3,000 you'd be, you end up with something that's I don't, not that useful. I don't really, to be honest, I don't really like the form factor because I, I, I do appreciate the hand gripness on the right-hand side of yep. my camera, of an SLR. And when it gets to something like um, an Epic, I would never use it without having some kind of additional hand grips yeah, and stuff yeah. on it. And I think that that camera is just screaming for third-party add-ons. Oh, no question. I don't think it's particularly useful without it. I mean, it's a camera built around a, a screen. Um, they've yeah. obviously got, um, you know, the concept to use a, a rear screen and then built the camera around that. Um, but, you know, like many cameras now, um, even the C300 is an odd shape. It I, is I, a bit, I suppose isn't it? just yeah. they're all getting so small that the whole shoulder where you could build a long, thin camera mm-hmm. that would go and wrap around your shoulder, 
um, is not reared. They just they just don't need to build cameras that big anymore. Yeah, look, it's uh, it's all glass, no ass. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> we'll be talking about PhD, and I just want to do a plug if I can. It's a deliberate ad. Um, but uh, just that if you are a member of PhD and you recommend somebody, um, there's a referral bonus going on. So obviously, Tom, we're talking about uh, stuff that we were doing in last term's uh, uh, course, which um, is to do with the uh, Blackmagic camera, and that was one of the courses on offer. So over at fxphd.com, um, if you are already a member and you get somebody else to sign up, you can get an entire extra bonus course. So when they sign up, they just get them to put their name in the referring member tab, which you'll see when they sign up. So um, there's a thing that's, you know, where the cost is and just pull down, um, pick your pricing level that you want and then just uh, put in your friends uh, who's recommended it. Uh, the only thing I'll say is that if if they don't get your name at the time they join, please don't email me. I get emails like a year later saying, somebody joined your course about a year ago and I told them to and they forgot to put my name in. Can I have a whole free course? I'm like, no. <laughs> but I will also say that we've uh, relaxed the rules slightly because a couple of people got more than one person to join and we're like, hey, yeah, you can get as many courses as you like. So if you would um, like to bulk up on PhD courses, uh, recommend it to more than one of your friends. But anyway, that's over at uh, fxphd.com. Now, Mike, are you doing a Resolve 9 course? I can't talk about Resolve 9. Oh. Um, but I will say this, that we did a cracker of a Resolve 8 course, and it was very successful. Yes, I... So drew your I did the course. <laughs> um, I can say only on the basis of my NAB exposure yeah. that there is a obviously a new user interface on Resolve 9, and we, this is all like in the public domain, and that... Um, you know, it looks awesome and that new user interface makes it sort of easier uh, to use. That was the whole point of doing it. And that Resolve 9 should drop any sort of day now. Again, this right. is something they've said that we're going to do. Um, so I'm not I'm not saying when it will come out, but it's, uh, you know, it's going to come out relatively soon just based on uh, the comments from the company that, that they've been reiterating. Uh, the reason I ask is um, I'm finding in my own personal experience and this may not be indicative of, of many others, but I'm finding the work I'm doing is in essence changing. Uh, it's coming – I feel like I'm working more like a, a photographers do, partly because I'm doing a lot of material on an Epic because I own one, mm-hmm. um, and the Epic post-production is not a simple task. Um, and um, without uh, Red Rocket Acceleration, um, a lot of um, companies have trouble dealing with it. So it's in my economic interest – to, to, to take that burden away from them so therefore they use the camera. Um, but it's also that the fact that I am now allowed so much more control over the image. So um, I'm typically I can shoot for a day, then I'll go home and dump the stuff in the machine and then I'll, at the moment I'm using Red Cine X Pro and it's a, usually a, a fairly um, easy, quick process to go through the rushes and I clean them up. And no, so I put them in a place that I want to present to the client. And then with the red rocket card, I press a button and bang, it's, it's out in an hour or two. Um, but it's that level of control that I've never, ever had before. Now, there's certain jobs that, that doesn't happen. If I'm on a, um, a bigger budget job, uh, then I'm totally confident that the post-production will deal with it. And I, I said, we don't need to do that. But um, um, which, the- which begs the question, and I, this is, uh, I'm going to sound clever by saying this, but I'm actually stealing from you because <laughs> you mm. said it to me first. This workflow, um, if you run the clock forward, I mean, isn't this the what used to be a couple of years ago, the stills photographer's workflow? Like- ex- ex- absolutely. And it, look, it has this advantage. It, it is more onerous. That's not, you know, as a rule, paid time. Um, but you I control it. Uh, uh, yeah, well, I, that's, that's the thing. I, I so enjoy. Um, it means I can pull rabbits out of the hat in terms of the way I shoot something, knowing that I'll sort that out. So that may be a HDRX thing, or you know, cheating the exposure down to deal with highlights or whatever. Um, but um, it does give me that extra control. Now I realise I'm being partly motivated because I'm putting the camera in onto jobs. Because there is a lack of a ProRes module, which mm. I'm certainly hoping Red is working on. Um, and once I, that's I, in place. Yeah. I was talking to someone that the other day, you know, like it is without a doubt the m- most either brilliant thing that 
Ari ever did or the luckiest thing that Ari ever did yeah. by going with that route because yep. that has been an absolute winner for the Alexa. Totally, totally. No doubt about it. Game-changingly brilliant move. Look, and, and I realise we had a built a philosophy around their R3D, but um, um, I like to think of it on my Nikon or on my Canon SLR, I've got JPEG and I've got RAW. Yeah. And depending on the gig, depends on the job, hell, I might even do both. Um, uh, but I decide that format. Now, I know the RAW will give me more. I know the RAW is superior in many ways, but there are many, many jobs that's really not required. That the go that extra percentage is um, inappropriate at that level of production. Well, you know, I mean, I shoot JPEGs sometimes when I'm doing a time lapse because it's quite simple that the job doesn't require raw, and I'm going to produce a huge amount of data, and I want to just at the end of it have a thing that I immediately process into a quick time and yeah. show to somebody, right? Um, and doesn't make the SLR any less valuable. I mean, I just no. I just and, know that I've got the exposure I want. There are other times I'm doing an SLR. Sorry, I'm going to say the other times I do a raw t- uh, time lapse because I know that I'm going to want to have to move a couple of st- stops of exposure during the time lapse, yeah. and I can only do that with the raw file. I, I don't think it takes anything away that I have the cheap option for some jobs. I, I think people get caught, and in these arguments on Red User, people get caught up in camera technology, and, and it, in a sense, it always has to be optimized. But there's a commercial reality um, that things need to be done and that the final 1% or the final few percentage points improvement in quality is just simply not warranted for the investment. Um, now, if you're making Spider-Man, um, then you yeah, go... no question. Yeah, there's no issue. You go beyond that extra couple of percent. Look, I'd go further and say the thing that we want in cameras right now, again, not to make them cheap and nasty just because it's awesome, is a bunch of stuff you're getting in an iPhone that you don't have in a camera. I mean, I was out with a guy who's a really good tech guy, knows his stuff, no problem with this space, completely super technical, literate XILM on the weekend. He pulls out his camera, takes some shots at the Opera House on 35 on a lovely 85mm lens, mm. and then puts it around his neck and starts taking his iPhone out and taking exactly the same shot. And yeah. I and the reason he said is that just the immediacy that when he was going back uh, to his hotel in about an hour, he'd send those to his wife and his kids. Yeah. And it was just going to take him too long until he got around to processing the Canon photos and then would deal with them and then he'd want to color grade them and then he'd finally get them done. And it would all be like probably when he got back to the States in about three days' time and he wanted to send some before – he wanted the photos to arrive before he did – and I just thought, isn't that extraordinary? Like, you've got yeah. this camera. And that iPhone photo is more valuable. It has brought more joy and pleasure than the high-quality one that you simply can't move through the system fast enough. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I'm not knocking. It's, it's, um, uh, and we've gone a little rat holy in a sense, from the, 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 uh, the colour grading thing. Um, and when I say colour grading, I'm doing a one-light rushes um i don't do a, a full color grade that's inappropriate to do I, I mean i think you should be able to have a color grade a temp color grade that you could give the client right away like you should mm. be able to have a temp color grade that somebody could have to have a look at because you've got a really amazing performance from today or a clip without having to do any processing and why would i mean it would take away nothing but you know red has announced or did announce that they were going to do exactly this i mean this is wasn't a prox- wasn't a proxy model going to be h264 which isn't that close to useless? I thought that had changed, but oh, I mean, and the, may, have. The, may have the professional I/O unit is out now. I yes. mean, we now have you know, so clearly, Red are moving beyond um, you know the the base cameras. I I hope we get some of this stuff that has been discussed before we go into the next R and D. I'm not going to say rat hole because it's it's hardcore primary business, but the next sort of evolutionary stage of the dragon chips. Yes. I'm a little worried about is that the dragon chips will come along and everything, it'll get, you know, all the attention and rightly so, I guess. And some of these other things won't. But uh, mm-hmm. if I had a complaint from people on not wanting to use the red, it's this perception that it's too hard. And I've got to tell you, and I know this sounds really weird, but sometimes you just need to kill the perception. Like it yep. might be enough to say, hey, we can shoot all this if you want, just, you know, progress. Yep. I choose not to. But yeah. you can have that option if you want, sure. And they you go, the oh, really? You oh, okay, no and then you, but, but even if they don't choose, you know what I mean? Even yeah. just to say to them, you yeah, know, it's fine. We could shoot all pro as we want, but 
we're here anyway, so I'll record both and yep. actually we'll use the good files. Yeah, and the, the, the fact that Red's moved from 4K to 5K, I, I found a couple of clients who were more than happy to deal with 4K footage. They transcoded themselves. They were savvy. They knew what they were doing. And some production companies are savvy. Um, are now going, oh, that 5K stuff. I mean, what we used to be able to transcode your footage overnight and be editing the next day, but the 5K, because um, they're not willing to buy a red rocket because most production companies will be doing some Alexa jobs, some, oh, my God, XD cam jobs. Um, they're unlikely to invest in a specialist card that does nothing but that. So, Mike, with Dragon at the end of the year at 6K, um, I, I actually wish Red would come out with a dumb version of a Red Rocket card. <laughs> well, I'm, I would be going for a Dragon chip right now, not for 6K. I'm going for it because it's going to have, I hope, better latitude. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And that's um, just totally my motivation. Is actually a, a, a bit of a, well, I wouldn't say a bum, but they're sort of stuck with it because they've got to sort of, uh, as you make that sensor larger, you they don't want to make it less dense. Um, so if you keep the same pixel, uh, pixel density, it's just inevitably going to be get larger and Yes. More pixels. Well, look, we're, we're, I deal with people with computers um, in professional places who are running 2008 towers, Mac towers. And, you know, um, uh, I've yet to even come across a client who's got uh, – I could give a Thunderbolt drive to. Mm. Um, yeah, so that's a whole different problem. <laughs> yeah. I mean, eventually, of course, it will all, all come through. There is a best practice that solves a lot of these issues, but it's just that commercial reality – that, you know, people buy gear, if you're a post house, um, or, or, and a lot of places are dealing a small to medium now. It's not really, not often not dealing with the, the, the big iron and the big places. Well, look, we are recording this right before uh, the opening ceremony of the Olympics. So by the time you hear this, the opening ceremony will gone by. So I just want to acknowledge that because you might be wondering why the heck we didn't mention the Olympics or at any point um, the spectacle that is uh, London. But that's just, you know, by the time we edit it and get it up, uh, that'll be the, the time cycle. But... I did want to flag before I um, finish out the show this week, Tom, that this will be a show that has quite a lot of uh, cinematography done with stereo camera work. Yes. And there'll be, in fact, specialist broadcasts, depending on where you are in the world, that'll actually let you watch, you know, the Olympics and, and certainly parts of it in, um, not all of it maybe, but in uh, in 3D, which they have for a long time been hoping would be a driver of 3D sets. Yeah. You've done a lot of uh, cinematography and know 3D very well. Mm. Do you think, just uh, as a kind of a completely new topic, do you think that this hope of the Olympics realising an adoption of 3D TVs is valid? Or do you think that sport like this, well, if I could get a camera down right next to the face of the person on the 100 metres final, in reality, most of those shots are going to be wide shots and it's not going to pay? Yeah, I, I think it, it, in my mind, there's, 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 there's two issues. Um, 3D in sport... Um, it works amazingly well when cameras can get close. So say in a basketball game where um, the field itself is quite small, cameras can be quite close by. The 3D effect is absolutely stunning. But if you're then dealing with sport where on a large field, and I'm thinking of um, in Australia, like maybe AFL, um, maybe in terms of sports, I'm just trying to think of, you know, if you're on a, 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 a long 400 metre, the race that goes right around the track, if you, if those cameras are back, then the 3D effect is, is pretty, you can't use long lenses basically in 3D and get anything but a flat binocular. Um, you, you lose your roundedness, which is really what makes 3D work. Yeah, I mean, if you were in the diving and you could get a camera down as somebody entered the pool Which low. You probably could, yes. Nice shot. If you are talking about um, men's basketball, where there's no way you can get a camera that close because you you have I think to. Ba- I've seen some very good 3D basketball. Well, okay, maybe that's a bad example, but you know, what I mean, like some of the bigger the, it's field a big sports. That, maybe that's it's your a, dilemma with sport. Yeah, I was um, going to say, okay, well, women's hockey, right, or some sport yeah, where you, you're going to have a, like a wide, big oval. Um, uh, it, it is like it's just a difficult problem, and and there are places that we've come to get sports cameras be, to have good footage because they're really small, and that also gets hampered. So you know, for example, in in Australia we have cricket, and we put a camera in the actual uh, wickets, which if you don't know what that is, that's the big wooden thing sitting up that that are behind the guy with the bat. I mean, that's a great place for a camera. You can't get a stereo camera there. Not not possible. No, and cricket's a good example of of of, of a dilemma for three D. I mean, it's a ginormous field. I, I don't know if there's an equivalent in the United States that would use such a large area. And that's, I mean, those guys use ginormous, 
enormous lenses to get tight shots of the cricketers. Yeah, I mean, that in, in American football, they they have the resources normally for a, a major match to put a wide camera to get over the top of the action, yeah. which I think is a terrific a terrific uh, shot. I mean, and I quite think, possibly really effective in 3D. Yeah, yeah. But for Olympic coverage, uh, we'll have to see how, ma- you know, how many actual camera locations there are. I could imagine you could have a terrific camera not not uh, not actually manned by somebody uh, right next to archery or uh, or yeah. you know targets and stuff that would be pretty interesting and I can imagine um, a few other sports but then oh. I some sports I think yeah and this is where the all the little RC droney helicopters have real potential um, once they become uber reliable um, and controllable um, the cameras can almost move in all you know obviously they've got to keep out of the way of the ball the bat the arrow, the javelin. Um, the cyclist. The cyclist. Um, but assuming once that control becomes really good, um, then cameras, wow, that drone technology means, you know, if you're doing a Tour de France, the biking event, you know, the cameras can be, my God, they literally could be flying beside these guys, you know, then track around to the front of them, come over the back of them. Um, obviously, the control is a, is a major factor, but you can see that drone technology moving in that direction. Mm. Well, look, in, in our country, which obviously is a small country, you know, a population of, what, 20 million, there's about 5% of private dwellings that have 3D sets apparently. Mm. Now, I would, I mean, the Olympic broadcaster here says, oh, that's great, that's 450,000 homes approximately yeah. that have it. My point is, I think a bunch of people bought 3D TVs because they were just good TVs and there was a good deal and yeah, whether look, they're actually going to bother watching. And, and that was the second part of what I was going to say about 3D. And again, these, these are just my opinions, but... 3D TV sets as they stand um, in most TV sets are not very good, in my opinion. Um, I'm I'm, I'm worried of making big, huge blanket statements here. But I I just don't think 3D, until lenticular or glassless 3D sets, and they are coming on the market, I've seen them, they exist. Um, But I just don't buy that people are going to put the glasses on and do that sort of stuff Though if you were on a regular do it, basis. If you're going to do it, you would do it for an opening ceremony of an Olympics yes. type thing. Yep. Again, I still think some of the spectacle of those things is how vast and wide and epic they are. And I always love those shots of the Olympic Stadium when you get, I don't know, for example, remember the Russian games? Mm. I was a kid and I watched it and they had all the people with the cards that would turn over the oh, cards yeah, in the yeah, stadium. Yeah. And so they would actually make pictures by having just people sitting there with bloody mm. different coloured cards. And then, you know, you go to uh, Beijing and you have these amazing fireworks. And the thing is, a lot of these spectacles, you know, you have it in Australia, it was what, thousands of people with uh, fake kangaroos on bicycles and... Uh, and oh, actually, the Sydney the, the Sydney opening ceremony was amazingly good. Yeah, but my point is... But in 3D would have been pretty impressive. Yes, and yet some of the examples I'm giving you work as big wide shots. I mean, I want to see fireworks on a big wide shot. Well, a wide shot can certainly work in um, 3D. Uh, uh, um, but to make it work in 3D, it no longer feels quite such like a big shot. Yeah, you, you, there's a balance there. And that's where a good steer, you know, if they really know their 3D, they'll balance that um, um, optimally. But, um, uh, yeah, look, I think the day when 3D sets are casual, so you're watching TV and um, a program comes on and it just happens to be 3D and you can watch it in 3D. There's no glasses. There's no ghosting. There's no headaches. Um, the, the shutter glass technology, in my mind, is a bit of a dog. Um, the, the, the ones I've seen in TV sets um, hurt my eyes and I'm pretty good with 3D. Um, but uh, I think when that happens, you, uh, that, that strikes me as a major barrier. And when that barrier is down... I think 3D is really going to take off. Well, that's it for this week. We're not going to go into uh, pivoting into uh, the difficulties I had with my Mac upgrade and uh, my Lion install and stuff other than to say, um, yeah. <laughs> but I will say... <laughs> You're a brave Tom, man, Michael. I haven't uh, gone there. I will say, Tom, thank you so much for uh, being in on the show. Um, now, Jason is literally back uh, probably uh, this weekend and I'm heading out on Tuesday to LA for uh, SIDGRAPH. So I, I just don't know what's happening about the next step, but we will either probably do it from Los Angeles back to Jason or or, uh, or when I return. But um, yeah, so Jason, by the way, as I was 
recording this with you while you were talking actually um, tweeted me or texted me and said uh, say hi to Tom and say thanks for uh, doing the show so um, oh yeah I, I feel always feel a bit um, uh, I, it's very hard to stand in Jason's shoes I'm always a bit embarrassed to come on so and I'm always a bit a little disappointed because I always so much like listening to you and Jason <laughs> and then when I'm on it's a bit oh that's boring uh, well, look, as much as I love Jason and he's obviously one of my best friends, uh, yeah, it's great having you here and, uh, and I'm sure, uh, Jason would agree with me. Okay. So look, thanks so much for listening to the show. Um, show notes will be, uh, online as well, uh, but are no longer in the feed because it mucks up if you, uh, have, uh, as I do on my iPad, a, the i iPod download app, it gets upset by us putting the show notes in the um, RSS feed. So you can still download them from the website um, at obviously at fxguide.com. But if you are used to seeing that pop up in your iTunes feed, uh, that's why we had to change that. Uh, I'm Mike Simmer on behalf of myself and the whole team here, the editing team, Matt, who does uh, so much work behind the scenes and stuff. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Tom. And we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening. Send your questions or comments to rc at fxguide.com. Copyright 2011, FX Guide, LLC.